8. Romans chapter 8. If you're with us this morning and you are without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. If you just flag them, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to the passage we're studying today for your convenience. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from uh, your Creator to you today. Very famous uh, passage we'll be looking at this morning, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know, Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's pray together. Father, we're humbled again to be able to come together and to study Your Word, and not to do it alone, but to do it in the presence of Your Holy Spirit in this room and Your Holy Spirit at work within our hearts. And we thank You that these promises that we find in Your Word are not merely uh, pep talks or merely uh, things that are intended to uh, feel, make us feel encouraged for a moment or two, but they are the truth about our lives, and they are the truth that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. We pray that you'd freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us a supernatural capacity to understand all that you have put in this verse and how it applies to uh, the current situations that we're facing in our own lives today. And we ask for this work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In verse 28, we come to uh, what is one of the most comforting and reassuring promises in the entire Bible, and uh, so much so that I would venture to guess that the majority of Christians end up committing verse 28 to memory in the course of their, our Christian lives. It was, uh, I think, famously and wonderfully put by R.A. Toria, an evangelist and a pastor of the last century, concerning this verse when he called it a soft pillow for a tired heart. And it really is that. And you think about how many of us in this room, how many Christians throughout church history have clung to this verse through some of the most perplexing and difficult circumstances in their lives and our lives as well. I think it's important to remember the context in which this promise is given. The entire context of Romans chapter 8, verses 18 all the way through verse 39 to the end of the chapter uh, is suffering, and how it is that the fallenness and the suffering and the groanings that have been introduced into creation itself into every single human life that has uh, ever lived, has been introduced into every single one of our lives, even as Christians, and all of it is a result of the catastrophic sin of Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of, of Eden. And as we've seen, the Christian is not only not immune uh, to this kind of suffering in human history and in the world, but there's a sense in which we face a suffering that no one else in the world experiences, as we've seen in, in recent weeks. The Holy Spirit doesn't give us this promise with the idea that our lives as Christians 
are one of kind of uninterrupted ease and bliss. He would never need to give us a promise like this unless we, he knows that we will and we do face great hardship and great suffering, disorienting suffering that occurs within our lives, even as Christians in the fallenness uh, of this world. And God knows this world, and He knows that our lives can be filled with great suffering and groaning, and thus we're in need of the reassurance that God is actively involved in even those events in our life, those events where we are prone to think that He's absent, but we need the reassurance in the fallenness of this world that He is actively at work in all things to work them together for good in our lives, that nothing is wasted, not even these difficult seasons within our life. I think it's important to begin by understanding who makes this promise to us of Romans 8.28. And even though Paul doesn't mention God by name in the verse, he clearly intends us to understand the promise to be from God, because God is the only one who can make that promise and then keep that promise. The only one who can promise to work all things together for good in our lives is the person or someone who is greater than all things uh, that are, uh, exist and all things around our lives, the master of all things, and only God is. And Paul put it so perfectly in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, and describing God as the one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and uh, in you all. And He is uniquely qualified to make the promise. Let's also notice, as we continue, by uh, looking at the promise itself, that God will work all things together for good in our lives as Christians. And he tells us, these, and I want you to notice those two words, for good. In other words, what, what God is promising to us in this verse is that He will not allow anything, anything that we ever experience in life, including the seasons of suffering and groanings that they produce, to ever work against us. He is promising that He will never leave even those events in our lives alone until He has made them into something good in our lives. He's caused them to produce something good within our lives. Now, that's a tremendous promise that God has made here, and only God can keep that promise. What a commitment he's made, He is declaring that He has made to us in all of this. You notice the scope of the promise. He says that he not, it isn't just some things that He works together for good, but astonishingly, I mean, you almost have to just stop and take it phrase by phrase, but He promises to make this true of all things within our lives. In other words, there's nothing that happens within our life that is beyond His ability to work it together for good in our lives. Then you notice those two words, uh, work together, uh, that He promises to work all things together for our good. And that uh, word, we get our English word synergy uh, from the single Greek word uh, that is translated, and Paul uses here for the two words, uh, work together. And synergy means to work together with, to be active together. 
And what Paul is declaring, in other words, he's not saying that all things in our lives are good. And that's important to understand. Not everything that happens in our life is good. That's not what the verse is saying, because they aren't all good, the things that happen in this world or the things that even happen within our lives. It's a fallen world we live in, and we all experience a very, very broad mix of good and bad in this world. But again, God will not stop His active involvement in every event in our lives until He has worked it uh, together for our uh, good, till He has uh, produced this. And this emphasizes to us this working together, how actively involved He is in producing this in our lives. And you notice that it's in the present tense that He works all things together for good. It's in the present tense. And this is something that he is saying that he is actively, continually, presently doing in each of our lives as Christians. It's wonderful to think about. The instant anything happens within our lives, whether it's an event, whether it's a conflict, whether it's a conversation, whatever it might be, the instant any of us as Christians experience anything in life, God Himself immediately goes to work in that, that situation, and He begins then to work it together for our good. And again, the truths that are found in the promise, I mean, they're just simply astonishing. All of this is accomplished in our lives through what is known as the providence of God. The providence of God is essentially the recognition that all of creation, everything that exists, is under the sovereignty, the almightiness of God under His guidance and under His control. And it is the recognition that He is guiding everything, including human history, on a national level, an international level, and on an individual level, that he is guiding history in every way to his God-appointed uh, end. I like to define the sovereignty of uh, the providence of God is that he rules over all and he overrules all uh, for our good to make it serve his purposes. Now, examples of the providence of God in working all things together for good in the lives of His children, I mean, they absolutely abound in the Scriptures. And why does He make them abound in the Scriptures except that we would learn the stories of these men and women in the Scriptures and realize that what was true of them and what God did for them, that He is also doing for us. I think uh, in the Old Testament, certainly the poster child for uh, seeing how God's providence works within our lives as God's children uh, comes from the book of Genesis having to do with a man by the name of Joseph. And as a youth, in youth jo Joseph is given tremendous promises by God that he is going to arise to a position in the world. Uh, that is uh, so significant 
uh, that even his mo mother and his father will acknowledge the superior position that he's been elevated to and bow down before him, and all of his 11 brothers will do so. Will you think so who cares? Well, what makes it significant is that his father is Jacob, and his 11 brothers are the brothers that are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel, that he will be elevated to the highest position uh, within, within his family. And of course, we know as we uh, know a little bit about his story, ultimately, he did rise up to that position. His brothers did bow down to him, and uh, all of it happened in Egypt as he became uh, second only, ultimately, to Pharaoh in terms of pure power in the known world at that time. But in between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, uh, there was, uh, because of envy, his brothers threw him into a pit, and uh, they were contemplating by what means they would kill him. Now, that's a problem. Uh, and, you know, we, we become familiar with Joseph's story, and, we, you know, you almost don't take these bits and pieces and say, let me put myself in the bottom of that pit overhearing the conversation of my brothers determining by what means they're going to kill me. And, and that was his portion. That's not a good thing. Uh, and then sold into slavery to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and then ultimately sold by the Ishmaelites into slavery in Egypt to a, a, a servant of, of Pharaoh by the name of Potiphar, and then falsely accused of attempted rape by Potiphar's wife, and then thrown into prison, uh, innocent of, of all the charges, and yet here he is in prison. It would be a terrible thing to be in prison uh, even a day of our life, uh, but how much worse to be in there and be completely innocent of the charges that have been brought ag uh, against you. And where while he was in that prison, he interpreted the dreams of the baker and the chief butler of Pharaoh, and then he pleaded with the chief butler that when he would be restored, as his, his interpretation of the dreams told him, would be restored to his position before Pharaoh, don't forget me in this prison. I'm in here innocent. Bring my case before Pharaoh so that I might be released. And for two years, uh, the butler forgets the, his name, forgets anything about him, and he languishes within, within that, that prison. And then ultimately he's remembered. He comes on the scene out of the prison. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and he is elevated to uh, the practical head of the nation of, of Egypt in preparation for the coming famine. And it would be interesting that it would be later in his life, in fact, late in his life, after being united with his brothers and with his father and then following the death of his father Jacob, that he would then declare to his brothers of this entire 20-year season of his life, that's a long time. This entire period constituted 20 years of his life, and he declared to his brothers, he said, do not be afraid, for I'm I in the place of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. 
And as he got to this place in his life, and he's able now to look back upon a long chapter of his life, encompassing 20 years, he looks back upon it, and and as he looks back upon it, now he's able to see God's fingerprints over all of it. Now he sees it with a clarity that none of it was out of control, none of it was beyond what God was working together for good in his life and accomplishing his purposes within, within his life. Everything occurred exactly as God, uh, his provident, as God had promised and had uh, in, in, in intended. God had ruled over all and overruled everything for his, his purposes. He'd worked it all together for good, as Joseph himself said. We think about David in this regard. And here he is, he's called to be the next king of Israel. He's anointed to become the next king of Israel at a very young age. And all of that promises given to him by God, followed by years of running for his life, being hunted by the first king of Israel, Saul. And not everything that was going on in David's life at that time were good. Not, uh, that's not the promise that God makes here. There was a lot of evil that was directed against uh, David. It wasn't good. But the promise that God makes here is that God will work all things together for good. And David, in the course of his fleeing from King Saul, he reached a point where even he gave up on uh, giving any, having any kind of hope that he would ultimately become uh, the next king of, of Israel. And the promises of God being fulfilled. In 1 Samuel, he declared at a low spot in his life, he said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. And yet David ultimately became the king of Israel as God had promised. Against all human odds, he became that king, and he became the greatest king that Israel has ever known. And it seemed as if the whole world rose up against God's plan for David's life. All of the powers that were in existence in that part of the world, and yet God ruled over all, and he overruled all of it for his purposes in, in David's life and working all things together for uh, good. And not only making David king, but then using the evil of Saul, using those 10 years of persecution that David went through, the unfairness of it, absolutely unjust, innocent of, of all of it, but then taking that and using it to uniquely prepare his character to now become king. God worked it together uh, for good. We could speak of Moses. His life breaks up for us in, in three even sections. He lives to 120 years old, and there's the first 40 years that he lives uh, in all of the pleasure and comfort of, of Egypt as the son of uh, Pharaoh. And then the final 40 years, of course, he leads the children of Israel from their bondage in Egypt then to the promised land and, and uh, a 40-year wandering that was unnecessary, but he shepherded them during that time. But it's that middle 40 years that's interesting uh, in, in this regard, where David, during that entire 40 years, uh, he herded sheep. And it wasn't uh, <laughs> like he was herding his own sheep. Uh, in the course of the 40 years, he is so, uh, uh, had all of the drive, all of the ambition, so driven out of his life by life circumstances uh, that in 40 years, he doesn't even bother to get his own flock. 
He is absolutely content to uh, herd sheep for 40 years and then to herd uh, somebody else's sheep, a flock that belonged to his father-in-law. And you look at David's life, you look, I mean, uh, Moses' life, you look at those 40 years, and it, it, it looks like a total waste to everyone but God, uh, who knew what only God knew at the moment, and, and that in all of this, Moses, uh, though learned in all of the wisdom of Egypt, was picking up the most important degree that he'd ever learned what's referred to as the, his BSD degree, his backside of the desert degree, where he was picking up this degree there and learning and in, uh, in preparing to lead another flock for 40 years that would not belong to him either, but belong to God, and then shepherd that flock, the children of Israel, on God's behalf. And God worked it all together for good. We move into the New Testament with the Apostle Paul, and he's imprisoned in Rome. This is not a good thing. He's innocent of every charge that's been brought uh, against him. He's imprisoned for simply being a Christian. And, and yet, when he writes uh, his letter to the church at Philippi during that imprisonment, he spoke to them openly of the providence of God at work, even in all of this bad, all of this wrong, all of this unfairness that God was overruling all of it and, and uh, ruling over all of it for his purposes in Paul's life. You might remember the passage in Philippians chapter 1 as he wrote in the letter, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things that happened to me, all of them bad, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the entire palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And some indeed preach Christ even, without, uh, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains but uh, the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. And what then? I mean, how am I going to look at all of this? He said, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Paul looked at it, and he looked beyond the bad, all of the unfairness of it, and he could see the fingerprints of God, the hand of God, working everything together, for good in his life. And then in the example of God's providence that transcends all other examples in human history, we have Jesus himself. And there is nothing about the day of his crucifixion. From the, his arrest in the morning in the Garden of Gethsemane as a result of an act of betrayal by Judas, through all of the beatings that he endured, the lies, the false accusations that were hurled against him, the blasphemies and the humiliation, and, and to the crown of thorns that were put upon his head, to the nails that were uh, pierced his hands and his feet, to his final breath, to ultimately following his death, the spear that was later thrust up under the rib cage into his heart in order to confirm his death. There was nothing about that day that you could look at humanly speaking and declare it uh, to be good. It was an injustice on, on 
so many levels that it's impossible uh, to communicate it. And yet God took all of the wrong, all of the evil, all of the bad, all of the injustices uh, of, of that day, and he took Calvary, and he took that scene of unspeakable bad and unspeakable not good on the part of both Jew and Gentile, on the part of the devil himself, and he so ruled over it and overruled it in his providence that before everything was said and done, Satan was not only left utterly defeated, but God had then on top of that provided mankind with a Savior, a Savior who not only covers our sins, but a Savior who washes our very sins away. And the point that Paul is making here in Romans 8, 28, is that the same God who worked all of these things together for good in His people throughout time is present tense doing exactly that very same thing in each of our lives as Christians this morning. And I think that each and every one of us as Christians in this room, on some level, we would be able to uh, say that uh, recognize that this very thing is true of each of us. I have never personally known it not to be true in my own life. As God, by His grace, has given me the time to uh, go through whatever it is, uh, the suffering that He allows to be introduced into life, I've never been, as time has gone by, there's never been an event that I didn't look back on and then see, oh, that's what God was up to there. That's the good thing that he was doing that was uh, worth it to him to allow all of the bad in order for this great thing of his Holy Spirit to be accomplished in my life. Whether it's thought of as great in anybody else's life, it, it doesn't matter. And I know it's the witness of every single one of us as uh, Christians. He's always brought me back uh, to that place where I look back upon the suffering and I see how He has overwhelmed it for good in my life, and to bring us to the place where we're actually thankful for the suffering and thankful for the trial. How many of us have been in a trial where you look and you say, God, I'm going to trust you through this, that you know what you're doing? And I mean, we can get messed up in trials. Uh, and uh, I'm going to trust you for the grace to get through this. Uh, but that there'll ever come a day that I will look upon this particular chapter in my life and look back and thank you for introducing that into my life. I don't know about that. And then is enough time is allowed to elapse, and we see now with oftentimes the 2020 vision of hindsight and see what he was doing. Uh, we understand that he was working it together for good, and we become uh, thankful for it. How often each of us, I think, has heard a Christian. Uh, I hope all of us have heard it from a, a, a beautiful saint within our lives, where after some long, horrible trial uh, uh, caused by all of the fallenness that, that surrounds us has come upon them, uh, and, and we'll hear them uh, say to us, as God is my witness, I wouldn't want to go through that ever again. 
but I wouldn't trade what I learned in that difficulty for anything. And not only have we heard other people say it, but we have said it ourselves. And it's a testimony to God's faithfulness, to verse 28. Now, at this point, I want to return for a moment to a consideration of the scope of the promise, that He works all things together for good in our lives. Now, all things, that's a pretty big, <laughs> that's a big, that's a big thing. That's a big amount of things. But just to stop and just nibble at it for a moment uh, with, with our minds and with, with our hearts, and to realize that this all things includes all of our sufferings, it includes all of the situations in life that produce very deep pain within our hearts, as the context in which he writes it, that produces a groaning within our hearts, our sorrows. It includes our material losses and gains. It includes our trials. It includes our illnesses and our diseases. It includes even an early death whether it be our own or whether it be of someone that, that we love. It involves, it includes our pasts. It includes our B.C. days, our before Christ days, and how we look at so often uh, what we once were with great shame when we become a Christian, and it's a part of making us a Christian. And yet when God gets done with His work within our lives, we see how He's even taken those life experiences, and He so redeems them that He works them together for good in our lives, in how we see people, how we see sinners, how we see the world, how we see God, how we love His Word, how we love His commandments, and the freedom that comes from those commandments. And then it includes our mistakes the mistakes that we continually make, even as Christians, that we then learn something from. He works them together for good unfailingly. It includes our sins. It includes our failures, that He works even those together for good. You think He would cross His arms and say, well, you made your bed, now lie in it. You committed that sin. I gave you a command not to do it. Don't expect me to uh, jump in and now work that together for good on your behalf. I mean, that would be what we would expect God to be like if He was anything like us, but He doesn't. He says, I'll take even your sins and your failures, and I will work them together uh, for good. And I think most of us can recognize in our own life experience how often we can get lifted up in pride as a Christian and think we've attained to some kind of uh, sanctification, and we start to view other Christians judgmentally, and, uh, and then we turn some corner and commit some sin that blows our pride to smithereens, and we're, our feet of clay are exposed once again to ourselves and to the whole world, and then what happens? How does God work it together for good? We're immediately humbled. And we come back into a fellowship with God and a fellowship with others that's marked by humility and, and, a, and a renewed gratefulness for God's mercy and, and grace in our lives. He even uses our backsliding and works it together for good. He doesn't advocate it, but He is able to work even that together for good. 
We think about the prodigal son, and I think it's Luke's gospel. And here he goes. He wants nothing to do with the father. All I, want, I don't want you. I don't want to live under you. All I want is your money. Give me my part of the inheritance, and I don't even want to wait till you die to get it. I know there's a better life for me out here, out there, than, than the life that I have to suffer through with you. And it's all a picture of the, the father is God, and, and the, the, the prodigal son is the backslider. And he goes off into the world, and he spends his money, and he wastes his money with the idea that there's something uh, better to be found in life than the life that he left. And then he hits rock bottom, and now he's longing to eat the food that he's feeding to pigs. And he realizes, and some of us learn these things the hard way in life, he realizes how good he had it. And then he comes home, and he comes home. The, the greatest thing that he brought home to his father was his appreciation for the relationship. And when he comes back to the father, he's restored into relationship with the father. Now to possess an appreciation for the relationship that he would probably never otherwise quite known. God's able to work all things together uh, for good. And on and on and on we could go with examples and through the day and through the year because uh, anything, when you have all things work together for good, the list can be lengthy. And this statement is all the more remarkable, I think, given the fact that it's the Apostle Paul who makes it, who really did have a PhD in suffering and in hardship, and in, uh, and in unfairness, and in slander and blasphemy against him and persecution, and who had a PhD of his own concerning the regrets of his own life before becoming a, a, a Christian. All of these things that he experienced in life. And it's him that God uses his, by his Holy Spirit to make this promise uh, to us. And again, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if verse 28 were written by some uh, sheltered blue blood who uh, grew up and spent all of their life in an ivory uh, tower, all the days of their life, we would view this promise with suspicion. But when Paul says it, uh, it gets our attention right away because I think most of us will admit we, not, we will not, as Christians, ever know a fraction of his, his spiritual life experience. And yet when he writes this, he looks back upon his life, and all he can see is that God has worked everything together for good. But I want us to notice as well that in all of this related to this promise, it is absolutely vital to understand God's definition of good which he gives us in verse 29. That, because if we don't understand God's definition of good, uh, because our culture is very materialistic, it is very easy for us, even as Christians, to read verse 28 and, and uh, to, to then define good as meaning that at the end of my suffering, at the end of my difficulty, God's going to reward me. He's going to work it together for good in such a way that I'm richer at the end of this. I'm more materially prosperous at the uh, end of this than I was previously. Or life will become more comfortable for me as a result. 
I think also because we live in a very, very self-dominated culture. It would be very easy for us, even as Christians, to come to think that God will work all of these things together, all of this suffering, all of the difficulties in my life together for good, and that at the end of them, I'll be more powerful than I've ever been before. I'll be exalted to a position I would have never otherwise known. There'll be a promotion at the end of this, or I'll be more highly esteemed by others as a result, or as a result of it, I'll just be, uh, you know, plain happier or that every dream that I have in life will happen, or everything will turn out exactly as I want to. And every single one of us in this room, when we read uh, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good, every single one of us in this room has a definition for that good, for that word. There's something that is produced within our mind, and this is our understanding of what that good looks like. We all possess it. The question is whether that definition is what God is promising here and whether that definition is actually could be defined uh, as, as good. And we tend to think of good in these terms because the culture teaches us that these are the highest and the greatest definitions of good. But Paul informs us in verse 29 that good as it's properly defined, is to be conformed into the image or into the likeness of Jesus. Because after salvation, being conformed into the image of Christ is the single greatest good that can occur in our lives as Christians. There is nothing more valuable than that there is nothing that can be defined as uh, gooder uh, than that uh, in our lives. And knowing that makes all of the difference in understanding how our sufferings are working together for good. I think it's possible, and I would understand you completely. And I think it's possible for someone to listen to me thus far and, uh, and thus far, in, in terms of what you've heard even as a Christian, I mean, you're too polite to, to protest outwardly, but inwardly, everything that I'm saying seems a complete folly to you. And you look at it and you wonder, how is it that the death of a beloved spouse or the death of a beloved child or this disease that now afflicts me is somehow working together for my good. I simply cannot see it. But it's important to remember the promise God is making here. God is not saying that all things are good. They aren't. God is not promising to remove all suffering and tragedy from our lives in this world. He doesn't. What He is promising here is to use those very things that none of us can escape in life and to keep those things from becoming a complete loss that they would otherwise be in our lives by using them to make us more like Jesus in terms of our character, in terms of our doing, in terms of our thinking. 
And so, the test of this promise of verse 28, of whether something has been worked together for good in my life as a Christian, is not whether I like the suffering or even if I was okay with the suffering or not. The test of the promise is to ask myself, did this produce a Christ-likeness in my life that I had never quite known before? Did this draw me closer to God than I've ever been before? Did this take me deeper in prayer than I've ever been before? Did it make my relationship with God richer? Did it cause me, like Jesus, to touch lightly the things of this world in a way that it, I never had before? Has this made me more of a pilgrim in this world? Has it made heaven more dear to me as a result? Did it make me realize, as Jesus taught, that life does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess? Did it cause me to reexamine my priorities in life and how I'm spending my life, my goals in life, and then to conclude that I would uh, abandon them as vanity and vexation of, of spirit, and instead to say, now for the rest of my life and the light of the maturity that this trial has brought into my life, I want to make my meat, as it was for Jesus, to do the will of God in life. And I want His will in my life to be the thing that nourishes me, the thing that sustains me in life. Did this great suffering and this great difficulty within my life? Did it free me from a bondage of, to sin that I might not otherwise have escaped? Like Jesus, did it make us into a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief? But then out of that sorrow and out of that grief, did it make me more compassionate toward people, more patient with people, more understanding of people and their hardship and in their suffering. And if it's done these things, or any number of things that you can think of in your own mind, in your own experience, if it's done these things, then it has been worked together for good, and in fact, the highest good that we can experience in life, because it has made us more like Jesus in our character, in our feeling, in our thinking, and in our doing. And though it, it uh, uh, and that is an invaluable thing to have occur within our lives. I want you to notice just for one moment who the promise is made to in verse 28. It's made to Christians, and his description of Christians there, his description of who this is written to, uh, to those who love God and to those who are the called according uh, to his purposes, that description is a description that is absolutely unique to Christians uh, in, in the world. And first, they really and genuinely love God, and they do so on his terms. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my uh, commandments. 
And then second, they're the called according to God's purposes. And what is God's purpose for mankind? Salvation. Salvation for every single one of us in this world to be saved and to be forgiven of our sins and to enter into a relationship with God. And it is Christians who have heeded that call and received that invitation for everlasting life and the forgiveness of sins and then, as a result, become the called according to God's uh, purposes. And as a result of that, uh, become brethren, that is, members of God's family. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, I want you to know that this is not a universal promise. It's a promise that is made to Christians, and it can only be made uh, to Christians. How can God work all things together for good in my life if I'm not yet a Christian, if I have refused the single greatest thing that can happen in my life, and that is to receive the forgiveness of sin and everlasting life by putting my faith in His Son. It is there that this promise then becomes mine. And if you're not yet a Christian, immediately after our service, there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front who would love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you have been created for. And that relationship can begin in an instant, and then this promise will immediately become yours as well. And finally, that word know is such an important word to know and appropriate to close with. And Paul says, he doesn't say, and we think, or we have a strong hunch, but he says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and the called according to His purposes. And that word know speaks of the confidence that God wants us to walk in, not simply in, in terms of His work in our lives, not simply because it is a verse in the Bible, but it, it is a verse in the Bible because it is a truth about Him and what He does within our lives. It is not disconnected from reality. It is true. And in the midst of all of the sufferings and groanings we experience in life, even as Christians, one of the things that God is telling us is that He wants us to have this confidence in the middle of that, that He is actively and personally and presently working every single thing that occurs in our lives together for good. And that word no is in the present tense. And the idea, in other words, this is something that is presently true of whatever we are facing in our lives at this moment. This is the activity that he is bringing to this time within our lives. And so this morning, I'd like to do what we did with verse 18, and that is to close by personalizing it concerning the suffering and the pain and the trial or anything that we might be facing in our lives right now, and then to be able to declare, and I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purposes, and to realize again that this is more than a verse, and it is more than a truth for mankind, but to realize it is a truth for you and for me individually here this morning and a truth that God wants us to be confident of.
this promise is going to come to pass in every one of our lives concerning every circumstance that we face. The only thing is in question is the, what's in question is not that it will come to pass, but my quality of life between the recognition of this promise concerning whatever difficulty I find myself in and then the fulfillment of it and seeing it. And God wants us to enjoy that process and to enjoy it from the vantage point of faith and to be able to declare, I know He's going to do this in my life through even this thing that I cannot make any sense of. Otherwise, it will come to pass one day. He will be faithful to work it together for good. But what a miserable journey it will be between the uh, looking at this promise and then not believing it until the day that it comes uh, to pass. The one is a quality of a Christian life that all of us long for. The other is pure misery. And so it's going to come to pass. And so the importance of having it be mark our lives today so that we can enjoy this perspective while all of that is occurring. Let's stand together. Hold your Bibles open. And I want to just uh, lead you in a reading, and we'll go from, and we know, to I know. There's something about speaking the Word of God into my own spirit, something about speaking it out into the universe, out into the whole creation that does something good within us. And so repeat after me, and I know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purposes. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank You for this promise. We thank You for Your faithfulness to this promise and the long weeks or months or years or decades of our Christian life. And Lord, we acknowledge that what has always been true and that is so clear to us with 2020 hindsight, we acknowledge today in the midst of the confusion and the suffering and the trial that we face that it will also be true of all of this. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for your providence. Thank you that you are bigger than all that we will ever face. And thank you, Lord, not only for your power to work all things together for good in our lives, your ability to do so, but your willingness to do so. And the heart that you have for us, Lord, the pity you have upon us as your children so far from home and so in need of what only you can do within our lives. Thank you for this promise, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. The second